So now, tonight, uh, we are going to go through 20 and 21. There's always so much to learn. Uh, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Amen? Amen? Now, last time we ended chapter 19 with a huge uproar in Ephesus caused by the silversmiths who made their living by producing statues of the Greek goddess Diana. And they were feeding into the idolatry of Ephesus. And they contended that Paul and company were attacking the worship of Diana, but their real issue was a loss of money. Everybody say with me, it's always the money. As they say, follow the money. I mean, nine times out of 10, when you see something like this, or you see church problems, or you see people getting in trouble for various things, I'm telling you, so often money is at the root of it. Money, the love of money is the root of all evil. Money's not the root of evil. Money's neutral, totally neutral. It's what you do with it. It's, It's the heart that has hold of that money and what that heart does with it. But it was the money here. Uh, They were upset that their their silver trade was being upset. And so we saw at the end of the chapter, the city clerk was finally able to settle them down and disperse the crowd. And one thing we're seeing over and over again in the book of Acts is how easily a mob is stirred up. And folks, we are in an hour of mob rule in our country and, and mobs are being stirred up all the time. And I've seen reporters go up to them and say, well, what are you protesting? And they don't know. <laughs> well, I don't know. I just, I just know that it's a good cause. Well, what is it? Well, I'm not sure. Or they'll give some off-the-cuff answer that has really nothing to do with why the mob is all mobbed up. And it was the same thing here. So as we begin chapter 20, Paul, and we're going to see some more mobs tonight. Now, as we begin chapter 20, Paul will bid farewell To the disciples at Ephesus, verse 1, after the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Now, notice that after this mob uprising, Paul decides to leave. And here is something I can tell you. In ministry, you sometimes must discern when it's time to stay and when it's time to move on. Due to hearts too hard to reach is often the reason. You'll minister, minister, witness, witness, and and really try to reach somebody. And finally, it's clear to you, they have no interest. And you don't want to sit there and speak over a dry creek. You move on. There's a a time to move on. Can you say that with me? There's a time to move on. There really is. And it's not a lack of faith to move on. Now, Paul moved on, and we are now... His movements are tracked, starting in verse 2. Of course, this is Dr. Luke writing this. Now, when he had gone over that region of Macedonia and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece, and he stayed three months. And when the Jews, here they come again. I'm not anti-Semitic, but my Lord, how they came against this man all through the book of Acts. And when the Jews plotted against him, as he was about to sail to Syria, He decided to return through Macedonia again. Now, a little Bible background. We we learn from 2 Corinthians, which Paul wrote when he was in Philippi, that he arrived in Macedonia when he sort of did the circle and came back to Macedonia. When he got there, he was in a state of spiritual depression. Now, I want to say I'm so glad the Bible tells me the truth about what its heroes went through. 
There's nothing wrong with saying, I feel depressed. Everybody look at me. There's nothing wrong with saying it. Can I tell you, it's not going to make your depression worse if you say, I kind of feel depressed. You're not going to go from one level to another level. You're, you're, you're there. Just tell the truth and then ask God to fix it. But, but never in the Bible do I see that we are called to deny reality, to be liars about our condition. If I have a headache, I'm going to tell you I've got a headache and pray for me. I don't believe if I say I've got a headache, it's going from a headache to a migraine because I said it. That's free. I'm just tossing this out there because we're shown clearly. Paul tells us, look what he said in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8. We do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia. Now here he goes. We were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. That's truthful. He's telling us we wondered if we were going to live. Okay? Yet depression did not keep Paul from evangelizing the province of Illyricum on the Adriatic Sea. Now, depression can often be Satan's tool. Now, it's not always Satan. And I want to be careful here because I don't want to shoot some of you down in condemnation. It's not always Satan if you're depressed. I believe depression can even be physiological. You can have a chemical uh, uh, in your brain. You can have a chemical lack. Uh, when I exercise, um, when I ride my bike, today I rode my bike, and, and I went for a solid hour just riding my bike, and I rode it pretty hard, and I noticed when I got off the bike, when I got on the bike, I was here. When I got off the bike, I was up here in the way I felt. You know why? Because it released in my brain those feel-good, happy endorphins. Now, that's the way God made us. And, and some people are depressed because they never get off the couch. And they just sit soaking sour, and then they wonder why they're depressed. Not to mention watching that TV all day. Now, there's a recipe for depression. <laughs> so, I, but, but sometimes it can be the enemy wanting to shoot you down. Uh, you know, it, it's an attack. And yet Paul did not let it get his mind off a perishing world. While he was despairing even of life, he kept right on preaching. And I love that about him. He kept right on going. Hallelujah. So it didn't work with Paul. Now, from Macedonia, Paul went on to Greece, and especially to Corinth. And while he was in Corinth, he wrote his theological masterpiece. What was that masterpiece? Say it with me. Romans. That's about five of you. Let's all of us say it. Romans. While he was at Corinth, he gave us an incredible, or God gave us an incredible gift. He'd wanted to visit Rome, and he was apparently now sensing the Spirit's release to visit Rome. But we're going to see that he finally got there by a very unlikely path, and we're going to see that at the tail end of tonight's message. So he sent his Roman epistle by the hands of a woman. I want all the women in here to say amen, praise God, hallelujah. He was not anti-woman because he's accused of that all the time. He trusted pure gold to a woman. Amen. And not only the epistle to the Romans, but also that this woman would get it to Rome. Amen. So he sent his Roman epistle by the hands of a gal named Phoebe. 
And it was sort of an advance notice of his coming visit. I, I, I don't believe Paul could ever have imagined how Romans would, would totally impact the world until Jesus comes back. But little did Phoebe know as she took the rolled up scroll and made her way to Rome that as one man wrote, and I found this today, one man wrote this, she carried beneath the folds of her robe the whole future of Christian theology. Because nothing explains Christianity like Romans. I mean, you can just take Romans 1 and park there for a year. I've done it. I mean, I thought about memorizing Romans 1. Because Romans 1 is a snapshot of what has happened to our culture. But that's another night. So she gets it there. Now, next we see the group of men who traveled with Paul. And here goes some names. Pray for me. Starting at verse 4. And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia. Also Aristarchus and Segundus of the Thessalonians. And Gaius of Derby and Timothy and Tychicus. Not Tychicus, Tychicus, which makes me itch every time I say it. There's something about that name, Tychicus, that makes me want to itch. But now, Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. All right. Now, these men, going ahead, waited for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Now, when Luke says in verse 6, we sailed away, he's letting us know that he's now traveling with Paul again because he says we. So he's with him now again. And no doubt his presence was a comfort to the great apostle. I'm going to tell you the truth tonight who was not a well man. You know, Pastor Jeff, somebody with that anointing, come on, don't say that. Paul was not a well man. He, he tells us he's not a well man. The constant abuse of his body by violent men, we're going to see some of that happen tonight again. Exposure to the elements and storm and shipwreck, his thorn in the flesh, all added up to continuous pain and suffering. This is the truth. Yet none of these things daunted him. His vigor and spiritual passion are amazing. I'm amazed at the grace of God on this apostle Paul. There's times I'm reading the Bible. I want to cry when I read about Paul. What a champion. What a champion for the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a champion. Let me give you some facts that will blow your mind. We can calculate that during his ministry, Paul traveled 5,580 land miles. Now, he was not in an SUV. He was traveling by foot, by horseback. So think about it. If you went in an SUV 5,580 miles, that's a journey. He did it by foot, by horse facing all kinds of hardship and danger. And then he traveled 6,770 miles by sea, not in the love boat, not in carnival cruise lines. No, no. They were small, light boats that were at the mercy of wind, sun, and storm. You had to believe God for the wind to blow right to get you where you wanted to go. There was no engine. There was nothing but sails. And if the wind wasn't blowing, you sat there. 
When the wind blew hard, you had to brace yourself. This is how this man lived. A total of 12,350 perilous miles he traveled. All in all, he evangelized an area of 1,500 square miles in less than 16 years. 1,500 square miles. With all of these physical afflictions, with his back beat up 195 times by a cat of nine tails, and we have a hard time getting out of our lazy boy and making it to church on Wednesday night. Y'all are here, so that's okay. I'm talking to the choir here. But, but can you see the, the passion? See, all of us here tonight have a ruling passion. We all have a ruling passion. Paul's ruling passion was to serve Jesus and complete his course. You can have a ruling passion for money. You can have a ruling passion for sex. You can have a ruling passion for fame. You can have a ruling passion for many things. But what we want is a ruling passion for Jesus and to finish his work. Okay? Now, so I want you to see his ruling passion here. Now, next we have an account of Paul's longest sermon. I get a kick out of this story. Again, the Bible's telling the truth. On the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bed, uh, bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message till midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together, and in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus. Notice he wasn't old, he was young, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speak, speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. He fell asleep during a Pauline sermon. Paul was going hours, hours up to midnight, and we're going to read in a minute, he went until dawn. <laughs> now, you got to love him to hang in there that long. But here's this young man fell out of the window, and Luke, Dr. Luke, said he was taken up dead. Now, at first, nobody noticed until they heard the crash of Eutychus hitting the ground from three stories up. Luke says he was dead, but verse 10 says Paul went down, fell on him, embraced him, and then he said, don't trouble yourselves for his life is in him. But wait a minute, a doctor just said he was dead. Amen. Now, when he had come up, had broken bread and eaten, now, this is Paul, not Eutychus. Now, when he had come up and broken bread and eaten and taken a long while, or talked a long while, even till day, he kept right on preaching. People falling out of windows. He keeps right on going. <laughs> and they brought the young man in, how everybody, alive. And they were not a little comforted. Now, I want to tell you what I believe. Paul had embraced a corpse, but he experienced a resurrection miracle. If you go to sleep listening to a Pauline sermon, you deserve to be resurrected. <laughs> Amen? Now, that's just a little bit of a day in the life of Paul. Now, next, Paul travels from Troas to Miletus. Verse 13, he went ahead to the ship and sailed to Assos. 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 There, intending to take Paul on board, for he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. Now, notice, he puts everybody else on the ship, but he says, I'm walking. 
Now, here's what I think is going on. Why would he walk and leave everybody on the ship and go off alone? Paul needed some alone time. And he decided to walk the 20-mile distance between Troas and Assos. This third missionary journey had been extensive and strenuous. <clears throat> Excuse me. And Paul needed time with himself and the Savior, which we should all take to heart. You know, there's times you need to come apart to a desert place alone before you come apart. If I didn't have my alone times, and I'm going to tell you, I need space a lot because all I do is study, pray, preach. That's all I do. I mean, that's what most of my time goes to. I labor in the word. But if I didn't have time to get along with God and fellowship with him and say, okay, where do I go next? What series do I do next? What topic? What theme? What, what is on there? What do they need to hear? If I didn't have time to, to listen and, and, and let the Lord put something on my heart, you would suffer. And there's times you need alone time. You need to listen to your body sometimes. Your body will talk to you and start sending little signals. You are tired. You are exhausted. You, you need to stop. You need to get off the, the train for a little while. You need to get along with God. And you need to listen. Quit doing, doing, doing. Some of you need to learn to say a sanctified no. Had somebody call me once, a church member, a long time ago. You don't know them, so forget about it. But they called me and said, Pastor Jeff, this and this and this has happened, and you have got to. And I stopped them right there, and I said, I don't have to do anything unless the Lord tells me to. Because this, this person was wanting to whip me into a whole bunch of frenzied activity that I didn't feel led to do. So I said, I don't have to do anything. I mean, i got to obey the law, but aside from that. Some of you, you can't say no, and that's why you're so tired. Now, this isn't in my notes. This is free, and, and, but you need, you need to get alone with God. Jesus did it all the time. He went up into a mountain alone. He went out in the desert alone. We're told all the time he took pit stops and prayed and sought God, and then he came back and made his most major decisions Amen. after his times alone with God. So he walked. He walked the 20 miles. In verse 14, and when we met, and when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. We sailed from there, and the next day came opposite Chios, Kios, take your pick, I don't care. The following day, we arrived at Samos and stayed at Trogilium. The next day, we came to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not. Notice what he did here. He sailed past Ephesus so he could save time. And not be distracted. For he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now, Paul here was torn. Do I stop in Ephesus to see that great thriving church? Because the church at Ephesus was one of the best ones going then. Or do I make haste for Jerusalem to be there for the church's anniversary on the day of Pentecost? He chose Pentecost. But I want you to notice, he did not forsake Ephesus entirely either because it tells us he called for the Ephesian elders so that he could exhort them. Look at verse 17. There's some rich stuff in what we're about to read. 
From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, though he didn't go to Ephesus, and called for the elders of the church. And when they came to him, he said to them, you know, from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept nothing back that was helpful. But I proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. Now, there's the cell ministry right there. He taught them in the synagogue. He taught them in the open. And he went from house to house. Testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, that means Gentiles, you and me, repentance toward God and faith toward Jesus. And see now, I go, how, everybody? How was he going? Read it with me. Bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. Now I want you to notice this little phrase, bound in the spirit. Let me talk about it for a minute. God gives to his children from time to time what I would call and have always called a divine God to do. A divine God to do. It is a burden to do a certain thing, a spiritual necessity. Something we know is a heavenly assignment we dare not ignore. Jerusalem was Paul's divine God to do. From the time that I was 18, I've had a divine God to do. Can I be honest with you? When the Holy Spirit came upon me um, in a very special way when I was 18, in a very powerful way, God dropped in my heart one night a fire. And I've talked about this much with you, my congregation. He dropped in my heart a fire that has never gone away. A fire to deliver his word, a fire to reach people with his word, a fire to do what I'm doing right now, and a burden that has increased as I've aged to finish as strongly as I started. And and it's a burden. And I don't mean that in a bad way, like I'm walking around weighed down. It's a burden in that it is my ruling passion. And and I give God the glory for that because, listen, it was not me. Uh, I was the last person you would have picked to address people when I was 18. I was very withdrawn, very insecure, uh, very uncertain of myself. But, see, God chooses that which is not to bring to naught that which is. And so the fire came upon me, this, this burning, like the burning bush that Moses saw where the bush was burning, but it was not consumed. My heart is burned, but it's never been consumed. It's Holy Ghost heartburn. Okay? Now, I'm serious. It's been a divine God to do. And now here I am, 40. And it's still there. Who knows, it might still be there when I'm 60. I believe that it will. But it's an assignment. And you know, I can say with Paul, woe is unto me if I don't preach the gospel. But see, I believe God gives divine God-a-do's to the laity of the church, to you. And if you get close enough to him, he'll drop something on your heart and say, here is your assignment. And it's a divine got to do. And he always gives an accompanying 
passion. Now, not that you're always boiling over, but it's something that never goes away. Listen, you don't hang on to the call of God. The call of God hangs on to you. And so this has been my experience. This was Paul's experience. Jerusalem was a big part of his divine gotta do. But God is also starting to make it very clear to him that his journey is going to be fraught with danger and persecution. Verse 23, except the Holy Spirit testifies in every city. Who testified to him? The Holy Spirit. So along with his divine got to do, the Holy Spirit also told him, Paul, this is not going to be easy. Because the Holy Ghost showed him chains and tribulations are going to come upon you as you follow this passion. There's going to be a price, Paul. But look what he says in, here's my attitude, king, the one I talked about Sunday. Here he is, the king of a positive attitude. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy. There was his ruling passion. And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So everybody say the Holy Ghost called him. The Holy Ghost gave him a ruling passion. And the Holy Ghost told him, there's a price to pay, Paul. Keep that in mind. Now, from this point, Paul had about another 10 years of ministry left before Nero would put an end to his earthly life and take his head off. And in doing so, Nero killed the greatest man on earth, I believe. His resolve to go to Jerusalem would result in much of his remaining time being spent in prison. I'm going to go. I'm going to obey. But I'm going to spend time in prison. Yet the most important thing of all to this great man was finishing the call of God, not the fear of prison or persecution or anything else. Now next he turns to his friends with a final goodbye and exhortation. Verse 25, and indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Why do we go through the Bible here on Wednesday nights? Because I'm not going to ever let Jesus look at me and say, you didn't tell him the whole counsel of God. That's why I'm going through the Bible. That's why we go through whole books. I'm going to tell you the whole counsel of God, not little pet verses. Verse 28, therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd. Now, if you have a King James, it says feed. They're both translated from the same Greek word. So if you have a new King James or other version that says to shepherd the church of God, if you've got a King James, maybe a couple of others, it says to feed the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now, the phrase to feed or shepherd is found, that Greek word is found 11 times in the New Testament. It's translated feed seven times and rule four times. The word shepherd, this is my calling. Here's what it is. Here's what a pastor is called to do. It means to groom the flock to go before them, to lead them to still waters and green pastures, to fend for them, fight for them, and gather them into the fold. That's the meaning of the Greek word. There's three Greek words 
poimen is shepherd. Episcopos is bishop. Presbyteros is elder. But they're synonyms. They're the same thing. They are overseers, those who have been given the oversight of a flock, a congregation. And they all mean the same thing. Groom them, go before them, lead them, feed them, fend for them, fight for them, pray for them, gather them. If you're not doing that, you're not pastoring. You're just taking up somebody's time. God didn't call pastors to be celebrities. He didn't call pastors to be in it for the money. God didn't call pastors to, uh, it's not a career choice. God calls pastors to smell like sheep. Tell me you're pastoring. I say, do you smell like sheep? When was the last time you were with the sheep? I know of pastors, they blow in with bodyguards. They bring a message and they blow out with bodyguards and never do, do any of the people get to say anything to them. I don't think that's pastoring. Not everybody's going to like this when it goes out over the radio because we have cultivated celebrity pastors. And, and, and I understand, listen, you're going to get known if you're a pastor, especially if the church is really large. There's no way to not get known. But there is a way to not be a celebrity. Amen. We're not in it for the fame. We're in it for the sheep. Now, I'm just telling you the way the word puts it here. I, I'm just delivering you the scriptures. Now, Paul says, here's why I'm telling you elders, presbyteros, here's why I'm telling you to feed them and pray for them and fight for them. Verse 29, for I know this, that after I leave, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. Everybody say from the outside in. And they will not spare the flock. Now, the wolves here are false teachers, false prophets and false teachers. Look at verse 30. Also from among yourselves. So everybody say from within. So he's saying you're going to get attacked from without and from within by false teachers and false prophets. And look what they will do. They will speak perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. In other words, for these false teachers, it's all about them not about Jesus. Amen. Therefore, watch. And remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. What a man of God. How many times they see Paul weeping over and, and praying for the flock to not be taken by false teaching. Now, his warning was prophetic. The seven churches addressed in Revelation, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, were all inundated with false teaching within a few decades, all of them. So he was speaking prophetically. Now, Paul continues, so now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Did you catch that? He didn't sell those prayed over handkerchiefs. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. 
I've shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, you ought to underline that statement from Jesus because it's not in any of the four Gospels. Either one of the original disciples told him Jesus said that or Jesus said that to him, but it's not in any of the four Gospels. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and they wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. Everybody say, because they had no Skype. (laughs) See, those days when you went away, you were gone. You were on a ship for months, gone. There's no phones. There's no email. There's no messaging. There's no Skype. There's no FaceTime. When somebody said goodbye and they were re- getting onto a ship to go, it was goodbye. Amen. And they accompanied him to the, sh- the ship. Now, chapter 21 continues to monitor Paul's endless travels. Let's dive right into 21. It tells us, now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos. The following day to Rhodes and from there to Patara. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. Finding the right ship was a big deal. Now here we see that Paul was able to find an ocean-going vessel that could take the rough sea and sail on a direct course for Phoenicia. Such a vessel would save him from endless traveling and speed him along his way towards Jerusalem. So he looked for the right ship. The things they had to pray for that we don't have to. He said, Lord, there's a lot of ships in this harbor. Give me the one that can handle the rough sea. And God provided. And so he saved time. He really wanted to make it to Jerusalem. And when he had sighted Cyprus... We passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload her cargo. And finding disciples, what did Paul always look for? He looked for the brethren. We stayed there seven days. And they told Paul, now here we go again, watch this. They told Paul how? Through the Spirit, not to go up to Jerusalem. Now let me pick the word finding. Finding disciples. This Greek word implies to find by searching. They didn't just run into them. They looked intentionally for the disciples who were part of this particular church. And they found them. And when they found them, they encountered prophetic people. And these prophetic people delivered to him the strongest warning yet that Jerusalem was going to be fraught with danger. Now watch this. I tracked this. Watch this. In Acts 20, 23, he was warned not to go. But here he's commanded not to go. Now let me clear this up for you. I believe he was being commanded to go, not to go, rather, by the spirit of men and not the spirit of God. In going to Jerusalem, we cannot believe that Paul was disobeying the Holy Spirit. Because nowhere does the book of Acts tell us he was disobeying the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, we're going to see that in going to Jerusalem, he makes it to Rome. So it was not against the will of God for him to go to Jerusalem. I believe what you had going on here is he was receiving a confirmation of what he already knew. Because remember I pointed out to you just a few minutes ago that 
Paul said the Spirit had shown him. When you go to Jerusalem, Paul, it's going to be with all kinds of trials and tribulations, and they're going to put you in chains. So now here comes these prophets, and these prophets are not telling him something he did not know. They are confirming to him what he already knew. Now let me talk to you about personal prophecy for a minute. Uh, it's, it's popular in some quarters for people to prophesy over other people. Not, not saying that that's not valid or can't be real. But, oh, it can be so dangerous. Because do you know how easy it is to speak out of your soul over somebody instead of out of the spirit? I'm going to suggest, here's a good example. These people, these prophets, told him not to go to the very place God put on his heart to go. Because they loved him. And they didn't want him ending up in chains and in prison or, or worse. You have to be very, very careful with personal prophecy. I, per, I personally believe about personal prophecy that it should confirm what the person already knows. Amen. I, I can't go up to this brother on the front row and say, hey, you know what God's showing me right now? I see you in Africa at this time next year. Yes. Oh, don't say yes. <laughs> and, and he's sitting there going, well, uh, God's never told me that. If God had never told him that and I said that to him, he needs to write it off. Before I knew Kathy, let me give you a little quick little testimony. Before I knew Kathy, I was in a group of people where there was a whole bunch of personal prophesying always going on. And so I was young. I was in my young 20s, my low 20s, not too very long ago. No. And um, this, this, and, and there was a leader uh, in this group that was kind of the prime leader and walked up to me and, and he laid his hand on me and he said to me, thus says the Lord, you're going to marry, and he pointed to a woman in the group. You're going to marry her. Thus says the Lord. And I was sick. It made me sick. And I said, but, but I was very impressionable. I said, oh, really? Well, I've never talked to her. Doesn't matter. That's what God showed me. So, amen. Well, listen, I almost had a nervous breakdown. <laughs> because I took her out once. And how do you spell no chemistry? And now here's the deal. If, do I really need somebody to prophesy over me who I'm going to marry? No, because here's why. Here's how God does it. Two people meet. They fall in love. It's no news to them that they're going to get married. You know, why would there need to be a prophecy? Why? Amen. I say nine times, nine and a half times out of ten, that's just pure meddling. Amen. It's wishful thinking. It's matchmaking. And so, let me just say, I got out of that deal. I ran as far as I could run. And when I stop and think that I could have, well, I don't think I could have, but if I'd done it, I would have missed Kathy. Which creeps me out. You got to be so careful. 
God doesn't need to come hama, hama, hama over you and tell you who you're going to marry. People meet. It happens naturally. But see, here these people are saying, don't go, Paul, don't go. But God's already told him to do it. So I think we're seeing an example here of the spirit of men speaking in the, in, and saying, thus says God, but it was in their own hearts. In going to Jerusalem, Paul is not being disobedient to God. We know from the rest of Acts that Paul was sensitive and obedient to the spirit, don't we? So it would appear that the Holy Spirit is simply preparing him ahead of time for intense trials in the holy city. His inward leading was of God. Now the monitoring of their journey continues in verse 5. When he had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way, and they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city. And we knelt down on the shore and prayed. And when we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus, greeted the brethren and stayed with them one day. Now look what Paul did when he had only one day. With only a day to spare, he made full use of it by looking up the believers in town. This was his way to meet with the Lord's people, minister to them, enlarge their vision, and encourage them every chance he got. Now, on the next day, verse 8, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now, here we're in contact again with Philip. And if you recall, he was one of the original seven deacons, including Stephen. And he was the man that God used to preach the Samaritan revival and to lead the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ in Acts chapter 8. Remember Philip? And he's the one that when the eunuch came up out of the water, suddenly he was gone. And he landed somewhere. Well, all those years that have transpired since then, he has settled down in Caesarea. And he has not only done well for himself, but he has produced four daughters who love Jesus and are prophets. Look at verse 9. Now, this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. You think God's trying to get something over to Paul? Because here now is the strongest warning of all. He takes Paul's belt and he wraps it around his own hands and feet where he's bound up. He says, Paul, this is what they're going to do to you. When you get there to Jerusalem. Now, did he tell him, thus says the Holy Ghost, you're not to go? No. He just said, this is what's going to happen to you. Paul already knew it. And this Agabus, we've also already met earlier in Acts. In chapter 11 of Acts, he predicted a widespread famine that would affect the whole world, and his prophecy came true. And now, in a dramatic gesture, reminiscent of somebody like Ezekiel, He takes Paul's belt, wraps it around his own hands and feet, binding them, tells Paul, this is going to happen to you in Jerusalem. And this is the third and final warning of God of what Paul could expect in the same city that killed Jesus. Remember Jesus pointing to Jerusalem and said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that kills the prophets and the holy men that are sent to you? Well, they're about to do it again. They killed the prophets. They killed Jesus. 
and they're going to come against Paul and attack him and beat him. Now, verse 12, when, he had, when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, persuaded by whom? Men. We, not the spirit, we ceased, saying the will of the Lord be done. Now the final lap of the journey to Jerusalem commences with only 65 miles left to go. We're in Paul's final years now. Verse 15, after those days, we packed up and went to Jerusalem. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain Manasin. That's the best I can do with that one. Manasin of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. Now, this Manasin was a charter member of the Jerusalem church and one of the few homes that would have received Paul and his Gentile companions. Now, look what happened when he got to Jerusalem. So he makes it. And here we are, verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem finally, the brethren received us gladly. And on the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And when he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. Now, let me tell you what's happening here. They're about to ease in and suggest to Paul, hey, Paul, you can't totally forsake Moses. See, Saul or, or Paul has been totally set free from any notion that you've got to mix Moses with Jesus to be saved. Paul has been totally set free where he knows by grace you are saved through faith, period. He knows it. He's been totally set free from Judaism and all the traditions thereof. But now look, these elders are are coming in softly, but they're carrying a stick. Look what they say. They said to him, you see, brother, how many numbers of Jews there are who have believed And they're all zealous for the law, Paul. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. Let me translate it for you. Paul, we're hearing some bad stuff on you. Paul, you need to get with it because we here in the Jerusalem church don't fully agree with your message. That's what's being said saying they ought not to, you are telling them to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. Now, let me tell you the truth about these church elders. They actually considered Paul a troublemaker. Everywhere he went, he caused riots, tumult, trouble, and the word that they used when, he, when they said, you are leading the Gentiles to forsake Moses, the word they used for forsake is the Greek word apostasia. That's the word they used. And from apostasia, we get the English word apostasy. Now, here's what they're accusing him of. They're saying, Paul, you are leading Gentiles into apostasy. Can you believe this? This is what the Jerusalem church is telling the greatest greatest champion for Christianity on the planet at that time. 
This is a slap to Paul. Pat. I mean, everything's going great. They're saying, hey, good to see you, man. But let me tell you what some of the folks are saying now. They're saying that you're an apostate. And you're leading people to apostatize away from Moses. And, and so you're raising up fellow apostates. In other words, Paul, you need to get with the program and mix Moses with Jesus. That's what they're doing here. The insinuation was his message of salvation by faith without the law of Moses was an apostasy. So the Jerusalem elders demand a meeting. Meetings almost never go well in, in this kind of context. Look at verse 22. What then? What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they have heard about you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, things strangled, and sexual immorality. In other words, here's what they're telling Paul. Put on, Paul, a good Judaistic show for the brethren that are Jewish and show them you don't reject Moses by going into the temple and doing Mosaic law-honoring things. Put on a show, Paul. Cause this rumor to be shut down. To, to, to Paul, this was silly. But he complied for the sake of peace. He no doubt knew that soon, per the prophecy of Jesus, the temple would be destroyed. It was only years away. Wiping out these petty traditions forever. So Paul complied. Look at verse 26. And we're about to have everything break loose now. Then Paul took the four men. Gentiles traveling with them than the men that they gave him. And the next day, having been purified with them according to the law, he entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. He's just doing what they asked. Verse 27, now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, here comes trouble, seeing him in the temple, what did they do? Stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian, a Gentile, with Paul in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. So a, a riot now begins based on a lie. Every mob we're seeing in America right now has been essentially based on lies. But see, mob-type people don't bother to think for themselves. They just listen to whatever they hear, and when they're told to stir up trouble, they go stir up trouble because that's what mobs do. And this mob was like any other mob. They didn't want to know the truth. Paul didn't do this. Now, let me tell you what was going on. Jewish law said that a Gentile was only allowed into the court of the Gentiles, but no further upon pain of death. Paul was being accused of bringing Trophimus, a Gentile, past this point. 
And that's where this all started. But he didn't do that. That's the lie. Now, verse 30, all the city was disturbed. And the people ran together, seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple. And immediately they shut the doors to the temple. And as they were seeking to kill him, they're beating him here to a pulp, folks. News came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. Verse 32, he immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commanders and the soldiers, they stopped beating this poor little man. (laughs) Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him, read it with me, to be bound with two chains. Everybody say, Agabus, prophecy fulfilled. Right there, Agabus said they're going to bind you. Right here, it's fulfilled. And he asked who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing, some another. In other words, they didn't know what was going on. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded Paul to be taken into the barracks. And when he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after crying out away with him. But if you had said to him, why, to this mob, why away with him? They would have said, really, we don't know. We just kind of get off on mob, mobbery. Verse 37, we're almost done. Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I speak to you? He replied, can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out in the wilderness? Where did he get that? (laughs) See how rumors spread? (laughs) But Paul said, no, 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 no. I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia or Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I implore you, Permit me to speak to the people. Now, here's the last verse. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs. The mob is down below him, screaming, yelling, doing what mobs do. Paul stood on the stairs and just did this. He just did this. He motioned with his hand to the people. He said, said, like this, and God was on him. And it says... When, they, when he did that, there was a great silence. He spoke to them in the Hebrew language saying, can you believe that's the way this chapter ends with an incomplete sentence? But that's the way it ends. He spoke to them in the Hebrew language saying, let's stand together. How many of you have wanted to follow Paul around? Let me tell you, there was never a dull moment. Amen? But now let's, let's just... I don't know about you, but I'm so moved by this little Jewish man. So mighty in spirit, so passionate for Christ, so fearless, so courageous, so unstoppable. That same Jesus that was in him is in you. Can we lift our hands to the Lord Jesus? To say, Lord, thank you for the testimony of this incredible man of God. How you saw him through to the end and he finished his course. But oh Lord, the price he paid, the price we see that he paid willingly. Help us Lord to have even a tenth of that zeal and determination and courage that Paul had. Can we just pray, Lord, fill me with that same spirit.
Fill me with the Spirit. Fill me with that Spirit.